Hi and welcome to Emergent Woman, a podcast from Girls Mass Uganda. My name is Tukahira Morin and our guest today is Olga Daphne Namukuza. Welcome Olga. Uh, thank you very much Maureen. I'm very excited to be here. All right. Um, Olga, you need to know there are very many young girls listening in right now. And I know they are eager to pick one or two lessons from this discussion. So that's why we are here, to encourage them, to empower them, so that they can be better and creators of change they want to see in their communities. We are going to go right straight to it. And our first question today evening is, the listeners would want to know who is Namkuza Olga Daffy. Um, okay, uh, well, hello everyone and thank you Maureen for hosting me. I'm really excited to be a part of the Girls Master podcast. Uh, my name is Olga Daffy Namukuza and I am a feminist. I am an SRHR advocate with a special bias for adolescents and young people. I am also a youth female leader. I am a friend. I am a sister. I'm a mentor and I'm a coach of many colors. But for today, I would like to be a feminist and an SRHR advocate uh, because that is where my passion lies. My passion lies with um, helping people and supporting them to understand themselves and appreciate themselves to be able to deal with life's challenges in whatever capacity it may be, whether it is in the field of work that we do in SRHR or it is in education or it is anything. Yeah, that is where my passion is. So it is with helping people. And that is why I identify mostly as a humanitarian, because I feel like that is um, most of the things that I do or most of my passion is driven by that smile that someone always gets because Olga was able to lend a helping hand or Olga was able to set something in motion that enabled them to have a better life, to have a, a better choice, at least for themselves. That is awesome. I think Girls Must is lucky to have you today evening. Um, all right, Olga. Growing up, what were you so passionate about? Um, growing up I always wanted to be a lawyer. I must confess that I was always very argumentative. I was always those people who used to fight battles that were mine and those that were not mine. So I used to be fighting battles for my siblings on behalf of my friends. So growing up, I always wanted to be a lawyer. And I always knew that at one point in life, I am going to be a lawyer. Okay, um, that is awesome. <laughs> I think you're a great sister. Um, our third question is going to be, how has your journey of growth been like? Uh, my journey of growth, uh, do you mean in terms of my career or do you just mean in terms of uh, just personal growth as an individual? Uh, personal growth as an individual that has elevated to becoming a leader of very many, many young people. So how has that whole journey been like? Well, um, I would like to say that it has been it has been life changing for a fact, and I know it may sound cliche for a minute there, but it has honestly changed my life because I started out as a volunteer 
uh, with Reproductive Health Uganda. And this was when I was still at the university and I was doing this part time. But then I realized that with voluntary work, there were always those small opportunities, those small windows to take up leadership, to always be at the forefront, to always be the one who is, you know, supporting the team to do the most and actually being the one who is, you know, putting in uh, more hours and trying to do more. So I started out as a volunteer, a very ambitious volunteer, and I grew most in my ranks as a volunteer at Reproductive Health Uganda. There is a youth wing that is called the Youth Action Movement. I joined it, and uh, as a member of the Youth Action Movement, we were responsible for our own governance and our own uh, management. So uh, I was uh, part of the committee for the Youth Action Movement. And uh, as we were at the branch, we were required to have a representative who sits at the board of uh, Reproductive Health Uganda. And that is how I ended up on the board of Reproductive Health Uganda. That was my second board, uh, I think, for me uh, at that time. And I can tell you for a fact now that I have reached a point where there are so many opportunities and I'm mentoring other girls and other young women to also be able to lead. Um, why has it been life-changing for me? Is that uh, contrary to what you're listening to right now, I used to be a very timid person. I used to not be so sure of myself. I used to have challenges with my self-image and I used to have a lot of fears in terms of expressing myself and in terms of my ideas. I had some issues believing in myself. But uh, with volunteering and with meeting other people and with interacting with other young girls, it helped me to realize that I had nothing to be afraid of. And uh, much as whatever I thought was not good enough, it was at least good enough for someone. It was a drop in the ocean that somebody needed. So I kept on believing in myself more. I started thinking about other people more and it was no longer about me. And once it was no longer about me, then I started seeing my life being transformed to meeting different people, to moving from uh, national to regional boards and to actually moving to even international boards. So the my leadership journey has really been uh, exciting. It has been full of support. It has been full of love, both tough love and the nice kind. But yeah, it has been life-changing. That is what I can say for a fact. Wow. Um, I, I think you're one of the women I know that has had quite an interesting journey in leadership. And that has to take me to my next question. Um, being a youth leader who has represented many youth movements all over Africa, what challenges have you noticed, especially when it comes to women's leadership? Um, I think uh, for us as women leaders, especially youth women leaders, we have a kind of double-edged sword because on the one side you're young, and on the other side, you're also a woman. So some of the issues that have come out is, of course, you're always facing um, some people who are still tied up in the negative patriarchal kind of agenda and uh, who believe that uh, women shouldn't be speaking about certain issues, who believe that women over a certain age should not be talking about some issues. But for me, uh, I think it has been part of the reason that actually keeps me going because I want to challenge them. I need to challenge them to show them that it really isn't about my 
age or it really isn't about my gender but it is more about what i can bring to the table and what i can bring to the table includes solutions to the kind of problems that you're talking about now you know there are always challenges of uh, people looking at women and thinking the first thing of oh well they first see a woman and they don't see the advocate they don't see you know they don't see your profession they don't see the person that you are so for us as women leaders you realize that we have to fight a little bit harder to show that uh, it is not just about the gender you're not here because of some tokenistic favor but you're actually here because you're contributing to the conversation and your contribution has an added value into that conversation um, another challenge that I've realized, of course, apart from the negative patriarchal agenda, is uh, sometimes the tradition. And you realize that also tradition and the negative norms, the negative gender norms also drive, uh, you know, that kind of conservative thinking where people think, well, young women should be in the kitchen taking care of their husbands. And if you're a young woman of a certain age and you're not married and you're an advocate, you know, many of us feminists have been told that you're going to die alone because no man is going to be able to talk to you no one can be able to contain you can't talk to men like that and things like that so you find that a lot of girls struggle sometimes with uh, depression and anxiety and self-image issues trying to identify as a feminist but also trying to see how do i then be the female leader that my peers need me to be to challenge these negative gender norms so I've, I've, I've come to believe that part of what people need is to always go back to other feminists to always go back to each other for encouragement to always go back to those people where the passion is drawn from the community the work you know deep down where you always get the passion from to always remind yourself of why you're doing this work in the first place and once you always once you remember that then the challenges just become you know a, a kind of um, a wave in the ocean. That is Olga Daphinamukuza, the program's manager from Uganda Network of Young People Living with HIV. My name is Tukahira Maureen, the host of Imagined Woman, a podcast produced by Girls Must Uganda, and we shall be back with more after the break. Girls Must aims to build a vibrant movement of girls through transformative leadership and confidence building. We envision a world where girls are leaders in creating the changes they want to see in their lives and communities. Join us as we fight to reduce the confidence gap of girls. Learn more at girlsmust.org. Welcome back. I'm Tukahira Mori. And you are listening to Imagined Woman, a podcast from Girls Mass Uganda. I'm speaking to Olga Daphina Mukuza, the programs manager from Uganda Network of Young People Living with HIV. Thank you, Olga, really, for those um, informative, you know, words. I know there are many young leaders, women, who are going to listen to you, right? and get to know how to make these decisions because it is not easy, I must tell you. It is not easy to penetrate in these male-dominated systems, but I, like you said, we have to keep trying. And that takes me to my next question. Um, what is the secret? How have you managed to keep winning in your leadership positions in this male-dominated system? Well, uh, thank you very much. I'm really happy that you believe that I'm winning. It uh, gives me a very warm feeling in my heart 
if uh, someone is describing me in that way. But uh, for me, one of the things that I've come to accept and it's one of the things that works for me is that I try to challenge gender from a point of challenging the gender myself. So even when I go into conversations, uh, when I'm having conversations with my peers, be it the men or be it the women, you realize that gender does not define either of us. If we are having a conversation about, let me say, men's shoes or, you know, football, women should have an opinion about that. doesn't matter whether their opinion is relevant or not. They should have an opinion about it, you know, and men should also have an opinion about makeup and lipstick and all of these things that we tend to think are feminine. So I tend to uh, try to encourage that uh, even among my peers. But also one of the things that I, tr I try, I really try to do, but it is difficult, is by I do by example. At least uh, with the people that I've interacted with, they would tell you for a fact that I'm one of those people who are always trying to challenge gender, uh, even uh, even the basic, basic, basic things that are uh, to do with gender. And uh, this has helped me to, for people to see more than just uh, Olga the feminist, but to also see Olga the programmer, to also see Olga the person who is capable of designing programs, to see Olga who is capable of, you know, doing budgets, and to see, you know, a whole, a whole person and just beyond uh, just one thing. Another thing that has also helped for me is that I I do not run away from who I am. I am a woman and that is not going to change. And this is something that I have embraced. And even the people who work with me need to also embrace that, you know, we're not going to change our gender to fit into society. No, society needs to find a way of ensuring that our gender survives in the society. Society needs to find a way of ensuring that our gender is actually effective within the environment. So it is about, you know, creating the relevant policies, creating the right frameworks, supporting girls in the right way, giving them the necessary information to be able to compete within the already male-dominated society, because I think the wheels of change are already ahead of us on that one. Yeah, that's what I would say. But also a lot of patience, because, yeah. you know, it, it takes a lot of work. Yeah, uh, that is very true. Um, speaking about policies, what advice do you give to the policymakers in order for them to be able to meet the essential needs of young women, especially in this period of a global pandemic? Um, I, I think for me, what I, I want to tell the policymakers is that the policymakers need to listen to the voices of the young girls and the young women. And they need to listen to the issues of the young people and to listen to the people who are actually affected by these issues to be able to come up to a solution. I'll give you one example. I was talking to someone today and uh, they were telling me that um, it's so interesting how NGOs are talking about, you know, uh, access to condoms and are talking about contraceptives and all of these things, yet we are here dealing with COVID-19. It's like people can't abstain and people can't, you know, keep themselves for just this period of time. And it was interesting because the other person in the conversation was was saying, well, just because COVID is there doesn't mean that my hormones know about COVID, you know. My hormones will not know about COVID. My body will not know about COVID. So much as all of these things are there, there are still other things that people need. So much as it is not, maybe it may not be relevant, but 
the government and the policymakers need to listen to the actual people who are having the issues because those are the people who have that those are the people who have the solution if it comes to issues of uh, girls and women we need to have the girls and women in the room talking about their issues and sharing the solutions that they think are relevant because at the end of the day the government and the policymakers end up spending a lot of money to design interventions that are not absorbed by anyone and then we have to go back and spend another lot of money to then go into a review process and at the end of the day they end up doing what the girls and women wanted in the first place so that is what i would advise them that all of that is well and good but they have to be in the room when the decisions are being made okay um olga i want you to tell me what kind of woman inspires you and why um the kind of woman that inspires me is uh, the kind of woman that gets up every day and takes a chance on herself no matter how small it is no matter at what large magnitude the kind of woman that wakes up every morning and decides not to give up and wakes up in the morning and decides that i am going to do something about my situation that's the kind of woman that inspires me i draw a lot of inspiration from um a lot of people now like here in Uganda you know for instance like Shiba Shiba is one of those women that i really look up to and i'm really inspired because i see someone who has had a dream who has set her eye on something and has devised means of getting it she's not trying to you know outdo herself or trying to do things differently but she is chasing after her dreams she is taking the steps the baby steps the big steps and she is you know moving forward to her dream so for me that is the kind of woman that inspires me that kind of woman that wakes up every day and does not give up wow uh that's interesting <laughs> really uh, anyhow um going to our next question i want to know like since lockdown the roles of adolescent girls and young women especially in the SRHR and hiv advocacy in service delivery have become a bit tricky. I mean, basing on the existing programs, results have become almost impossible to measure. How do we create a gender balance in the SRHR service delivery? Um, <clears throat> I think we really need to go back to the basics, like you're saying, we really need to start thinking about gender balance. And what does this mean? it means that we need to be able to design gender responsive programs it means that we need to be able to design gender neutral programs and we need to be able to involve girls at the same pace at which we involve boys not saying that girls are going to be transformed into boys but giving girls the necessary tools and the necessary equipment that they need to do the same work that uh, their counterparts are doing so during this covid what we have done is that uh, we have been working with a number of girls and uh, they have uh equally been doing uh service deliveries for their peers uh, in terms of art medication in terms of condoms in terms of tb medication and other things but uh, they have also been playing a key role in uh, peer counseling because uh, you know girls have the empathy uh not to stereotype them in any way but uh in our experience we have found that uh, the female peer counselors are much more relatable to the peers than uh, than the males and you find that they have been able to create a system 
because for many young people they depend on their friends they depend on their you know on their social structure to be able to adhere to their medication for those who are living with HIV and other you know uh, diseases so that the lockdown has literally rendered them in isolation and is putting them at risk of mental health challenges so the girls are coming in to support each other to establish support groups to support men and boys to also be able to you know deal with the different challenges that come with uh, living with HIV but also uh, another thing that has been really key is uh, how girls have come out you know many people are talking about how the economy is in a way stunted and all of that but i think what is actually happening at this time is that people are actually appreciating the unpaid work that women do that is never recognized you know taking care of the home taking care of the family taking care of the community these are things that we do that you know go unrecognized but now that there is this lockdown and men are now part of the same you know economic structure then it seems like the economy is on lockdown so anyway what needs to be done um the girls are already you know available but of course they need the funding they need to be funded they need the skilling they need to be given the knowledge to be able to you know carry out the different work that they do SRHR is uh, always changing it's dynamic and so the girls also need to be trained on the different trends as uh, as they move such that they can be kept up to trend yeah and most definitely uh, most of the things have been around like advocacy but also we have seen a lot of girls venturing into research to be able to collect the data to be able to talk to other girls to be able to be the ones who you know start up the conversation on uh, what needs to be done and what needs to change that is Olga Dafinamukuza the programs manager from Uganda network of young people living with HIV My name is Tukahira Moreen, the host of Emergent Woman, a podcast produced by Girls Must Uganda, and we shall be back with more after the break. Girls Must aims to build a vibrant movement of girls through transformative leadership and confidence building. We envision a world where girls are leaders in creating the changes they want to see in their lives and communities. Join us as we fight to reduce the confidence gap of girls. Learn more at girlsmust.org. Welcome back. I'm Tukahira Mori and you are listening to Imagine Woman, a podcast from Girls Must Uganda. I'm speaking to Olga Dafina Mukuza, the programs manager from Uganda Network of Young People Living with HIV. Going on forward, did you know that one of the key challenges that has been really actually realized is accessing universal SRHR has been poor in geographical monitoring? Hmm? That's at least a report from the SRHR Africa Trust. When I talk, yeah, when I talk about uh, poor geographical monitoring, that includes invalid statistics being used to report at regional levels and this has highly affected the response to SRHR HIV service deliveries like what is your say on monitoring monitoring and evaluation tools that are already in place 
Um, I, I think exactly like the report is saying, uh, part of the challenges that we have in Uganda, and I think COVID has been able to shine a very bright light on this, is that we, we do not have good quality data and we do not have good monitoring services. Uh, we do not have the tools, or we do have the tools, but you know they are not properly implemented, or maybe it is an issue of lack of capacity to use the tools, or lack of equipment to use the tools, but <clears throat> they are really not functional. And as the report is saying, there is a lot of invalid data. Uh, one of the things that we have been able to learn at least is that um, there is need to really strengthen our community structures. Because if I'm to give you like an example of an organization like, you know, UNIPA, like, they, you know, um, at UNIPA, uh, the organization has what they call the district-based movements. So what the district-based movement does is that uh, they, uh, you know, they get their own leadership structure and, you know, they get their, and, and they are leading themselves. So it's young people, for young people and by young people. Yeah. And uh, what happens is that they get in contact with um the health facilities in the district that are providing art treatment and they work with the health facilities to establish um, social, psychosocial support groups for the young people living with HIV at the different districts. So with every, psycho, with every psychosocial support group that we support, of course, we, uh, we keep the data and we are entering the names and this is one of the ways in which we are able to even follow up for some of the people who are falling out or for some of the people who are, you know, unable to come to the facility, that is how we are able to support them. And I can tell you for a fact that this is the data that we have been relying on to be able to support peers during this time, to access their medication, to be able to contact peers and know how is this person faring on? Is this person, you know, getting the right medication? Is this person getting the right service? Do they have a problem, you know, who can help them? You know, and this is the same data that has been relied on to say, well, they are giving out food and other material, essential materials. Where are the vulnerable people? You know, where are the marginalized? Where are the people living with HIV? And, you know, we're coming out to say, well, the people are here. The numbers are here. And this is data that really needs. So the district, the government needs to really invest in district-based structures because they are much more organized and they are much more smaller and able to manage than uh, the whole national database. But it really is a shame that uh, we are really dealing with data that is uh, invalid and it's causing, of course, the issues of adherence. Uh, another issue around data is that, of course, as a country, of course, we have <clears throat> UBOs, we have the UDHS, we have the UPR report, and we have all these, you know, uh, acknowledged, acknowledged institutions that uh, give us this data. But we do not exactly have uh, what ministries do not come out to really give authority on these figures for maybe Ministry of Health or Ministry of Gender to come out and say, well, this is what's really happening and these are the numbers and this is this and this and that. So you find that it also becomes a bit difficult because of the way the ministries work in isolation and are not exactly working together with each other and yet they really need to do that because that's how we'll be able to get such information. So, yeah, I, I really think it is a shame, but we really can fix it by, you know, investing in the district-based structures because that's where the information is. Okay. Um, that's actually quite um, informative because right now what I wanted to add on is, let's say we wanted to participate way beyond districts and national levels. Maybe we want to participate at global levels. I feel like if we don't like package it, like you said, from you know from the district level, at least that is smaller, 
yeah you can be able to start from there and have the right data that is really informative thank you so much olga um hmm. this is interesting uh going to the next question due to the economic hardships especially in this period of a global pandemic um like drug use exploitation of young women and transactional sex have really elevated this has increased the sexual violence the physical abuse depression high stress levels how could such critical issues be integrated in the different srhr programs to create solutions that address them yeah that's that's a really interesting question uh, and i was saying that i was talking to someone on saturday and we were talking about how um SRHR and issues of HIV keep on in a way um kind of changing or in a way kind of adapting to a different kind of new environment and now we are moving into a time where now we really need to think about mental health challenges as we are doing our programming um many of the issues that uh, the women and girls are struggling with we find that uh, for me i i look at the challenges in two ways there are structural barriers that uh, have already uh, in a way placed women in a kind of difficult position and by structural barriers i mean the lack of policies or the lack of their implementation thereof then the lack of systems the lack you know the the, the lack of uh, of processes that support women to be protected from violence the lack of you know the the the, the, the structures that are expected the legal you know the police the all of these people the poor are supposed to who are supposed to play a role in ensuring that women are protected then on the other hand there is of course a lack of information where you know the women do not have um, information in terms of what to do or even you know forms of violence there are a lot of people that are condone violence not because they they want to do that but uh, because they do not properly understand levels of violence uh, a study was done recently that came out to say that 68% of married women in Uganda believe that if your husband beats you then it is a sign of love and so your husband needs to you know beat you every once in a while but uh, what we have been able to do about this is that we are forming psychosocial support groups for women and girls and we are supporting them to be able to understand themselves to be able to appreciate who they are because you find that sometimes all of that pressure is centered on you know this is what a woman is supposed to do and if you're not doing this then you are a failure so helping women to appreciate themselves for who they are and what they can offer and then giving them support to move just beyond a conversation to integrate to put them into groups uh of uh, of, of you know income generating activities and support them to be able to support each other and uh what is actually interesting is that in Uganda we actually have manuals that support integration of SRHR HIV and even gender based violence and this is supposed to be done uh by NGOs it's supposed to be done by health facilities it's supposed to be done actually across the board but you find that um this is not done because these manuals uh people are not even aware of their existence in terms of how we are supposed to work together as a multisectoral organization or a multisectoral you know unit so it is really important for us to be able to integrate these issues and uh, it would start of course from the top leadership because that is where you know it has to start from it has to start from the line ministries because at the lower level if you realize 
um, I think uh, the integration is already happening. You're finding uh, SRHR organizations working with HIV-focused organizations, then of course supporting the references and linkages for the gender-based violence uh, survivors to be able to get the necessary, you know, medication that they need. So you find that uh, already at like a lower level, like at the district or at the sub-county level, um, the multi-sectoral kind of uh, approach is already working. That kind of multi-component approach where people get information, services, and everything all in one package. Uh, so it also needs to just be replicated at that top level. That is Olga Daphne Namukusa, the Programs Manager from Uganda Network of Young People Living with HIV. My name is Tukahira Maureen, the host of Emergent Woman, a podcast produced by Girls Must Uganda, and we shall be back with more after the break. Girls Must aims to build a vibrant movement of girls through transformative leadership and confidence building. We envision a world where girls are leaders in creating the changes they want to see in their lives and communities. Join us as we fight to reduce the confidence gap of girls. Learn more at girlsmust.org. Welcome back. I'm Tukahira Mori, and you are listening to Imagine Woman, a podcast from Girls Must Uganda. I'm speaking to Olga Daphne Namukusa, the Programs Manager from Uganda Network of Young People Living with HIV. Oh, but manuals aside, because uh, it is really so much evidence that not many of us like reading and all that. I just want to know, like you, Daphne, Olga, what do you really think about this? Like, how can we actually actualize this right now? Um, <clears throat> for me, I think, like we said, the conversation has been there and it actually needs to be brought to reality. So the first thing that has to be done is that we need to bring the girls and the women to the conversation. Yeah, because at the end of the day, these are the target groups. These are the beneficiaries. So the conversation needs to start with them to ask them what exactly do they need. And for me, if, as you've said, um, for me personally, as Olga, what we need beyond integration and beyond all of that is partnership. Yeah, because uh, for many of the partners or many of the development players, some of them see each other as um, competition rather than as partners. And yet, in reality, we really need to complement and supplement each other for us to be able to work well. One of the things that needs to happen is the partnerships, because you find that um, in Uganda, we have a certain kind of fraternity where we have the SRHR fraternity, then we have the HIV fraternity, and then you have, you know, the mental health fraternity. So we need to be able to have partnerships where different people are able to work together to put different bricks onto each other for them to build a stronger wall. What needs to happen is that partners need to come together to say, well, at the end of the day, we have come to realize that it is not just about providing sexuality education that makes a wholesome young person, but it's about providing sexuality education, and it's about linking them to the services, you know, for them to make the choices that they need, and then being able to, you know, to refer them 
to other places where they can get more information for them to make informed, responsible choices. So first of all, we need partnerships. And secondly, we need to normalize the conversation. You know, in Uganda, when we talk about issues of, let me say, for instance, mental health, it seems to be like, you know, it, it is always a blame game. Like you're saying, it is not these people's fault. People who are using drugs and people who are injecting drugs and people who are getting addicted to drugs, you will find that there are other underlying factors. And these factors are usually linked to mental health issues or stress or anxiety or depression or, you know, excitement or something that needs to be addressed and uh, their feelings, you know, kind of channeled into a different uh, uh, filter for them to be able to to reach their full potential. So we also need to be able to look at people beyond just the problem to be able to normalize the conversation. How do we have parents talking to their children about drug abuse? How do we have parents talking to, you know, uh, if we're talking about drug abuse, how do we talk about it without a condemning language? You know, how do we talk about drug abuse in our language that actually supports people to be able to live these drugs and be able to live a life that is actually healthy and productive? And then in terms of the exploitation, well, for this one, we really have to go for the laws. For exploitation, we really need the laws because at the end of the day, we can stand here, but if the government is not taking serious measures to take, you know, serious action against these people who are exploiting girls and women out there, then we might be here till the chickens come home, but when we're not making any progress. So the government needs to really come out strongly on this and say that these people know that the price of exploiting girls and women is this. And it is non-negotiable because you find that many of these exploitations are usually solved in domestic, you know, kind of in a, in a domestic way. A girl is raped and then her parents will come to the parents of the guy and they will negotiate, you know, a simple gentleman's agreement and that will be the end of that. But that is not acceptable. They should know, the government should put laws to even punish people who try to do things like that. So we really need to protect our girls from, of course, the social systems that we live in. But of course, even at the community level, we need to come back to the community members to talk about uh, behaviors that are acceptable and not acceptable, especially in terms of how we are treating our girls and young women. Yeah, We need to talk about gender transformative norms. We need to talk about uh, challenging negative gender norms that are exposing girls and young women to violence. Not to say that all the gender norm, not to say that all gender norms are bad, but they are the negative ones that have a negative effect on girls and young women, like you know, female genital mutilation, child marriages, teenage pregnancy, where girls are, you know, exposed, child brides and all of the likes. So we really need to come together as a community, of course, uh, challenge ourselves and be able to say this is not acceptable and we really need to protect and ensure that the rights of our girls are respected and fulfilled. Last but not least, Olga, what advice do you give to young women who are thriving to become better creators of change in their communities? Um, the advice that I have for young women who are you know, thriving to become change makers in their community is excuse me, is that never give up on yourself and never give up on your dream and the work that you're doing is relevant. Maybe you don't see it now. Maybe you don't see the lives that you're impacting now. But trust me, every morning when you wake up in the morning and you decide to go out there and make a, and try to do something that is going to impact someone else's life differently, that is going to impact someone's life much more positively, you need to keep going. 
and you need to remain to keep on reminding yourself that you're not doing this for yourself but you're doing that for that girl you're doing that for the smile that that girl needs to have at the end of the day so i implore you and i encourage you to keep on doing the work that you do not that it is not challenging but we need to keep on doing this because we need to challenge the status quo we need to shake the tables and show them that when women are doing things then there is actually progress then things are actually moving at a much faster pace at a much neater pace and with much transparency and accountability so i implore you and i am very proud of you and i hope that you keep on doing the work that you're doing and keep on bringing other men and women on board to continue also joining us in this fight bring on everyone bring on the women bring on the men and let everyone become you know an agent of change let us all be humanitarians and let us all have that ubuntu or the heart of the people yeah that is really awesome oh, one last last thing um any relationship advice um have you had any relationships like affect your work in any way yeah um well maybe it could be the vice versa i should say my work <laughs> in a way affects my relationships because um there was a time before the lockdown uh, my work involves a lot of traveling both in country and outside of the country so you find that um you don't get a lot of time to to spend with people to always be there with them and give them as much attention as you need but then i find that it is also the same job that um kind of gives me um stability because i feel like i literally apply um much of my ideologies into my relationships and well like any other relationships they are rocky they are sweet more they are different but yeah i don't know if i've answered the question <laughs> but it just wants to show that relationships never mind that is enough <laughs> for some people <laughs> No one ever understands. <laughs> ah, oh God! Anyhow, I think we need to leave. Ah, uh, this was fun. Everyone listening, that was Olga Daphin Namukosa, and thank you for listening in today evening. Stay home and stay safe. Don't forget to be kind to one another, cause humanity is what keeps us moving. Thank you for all listening in. Thank you, Daphne, for giving us your time today evening. God bless you all, and until next time. Oh, thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening in. Have a good night.